So one time Jesus told a story you might be familiar with. He said two men went to the temple to pray. One of them was a tax collector and one was a Pharisee. And the tax collector, when he began to pray, started to beat his chest and say, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And then the Pharisee, praying to the same God, followed that man and said, God, thank you that I'm not like other men. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I earn away. And Jesus made it clear that the tax collector, not the Pharisee, would be justified before God. Now, we read that story today, and a lot of people read it and think, that's right. Glad I'm not a Pharisee. But as we come to the conclusion of this book, Jonah, it is crystal clear that Jonah is much like the Pharisee in the story Jesus told. Jonah is a self-righteous, religious hypocrite. He's a man full of Bible verses who cannot stand, cannot handle God showing mercy to his enemies. But this book, the book of Jonah, it's not really meant for us to judge Jonah. The real question is, are we guilty of the same self-righteousness? Is our theology filled with a heartless orthodoxy that's divorced from orthopraxy? Throughout this story, we see Jonah, the prophet of God, who is just grumpy. He's this, like, scowling, spiteful little man in a chronic sort of state of bellyache, always complaining. Spiritually speaking, Jonah is like a consumer who is judging each day. He's measuring, like, a good day or a bad day based on what is in it for him. He's seeking God's blessings for himself, but he wants God's judgment for his enemies. He is seeking God's blessings, but he's totally avoiding God's call. He's avoiding God's presence. He is begging God to rescue him when he's in trouble, but then he turns around and begs God to crush his enemies. And he really cannot care less about an entire nation of human souls. And... He's bitter when his own comfort is disrupted. So he is just like an angry man. He says, it is better for me to die than to live. This is how angry he is. Jonah really represents the people of God when they've lost the heart of God. And he is representing, in a sense, a church that makes comfort and isolation the mission. Let's be comfortable. Let's stick to ourselves instead of God's kingdom. So in many ways, Jonah becomes for us like a picture of the danger of what we can become if we are inwardly focused, cranky, self-absorbed. Jonah also shows us that there's two different ways of being lost. One way of being lost is represented in the pagan sailors and the, the terrorist nation of Assyria, the Ninevite, where the capital of Nineveh is. So one way of being lost, we see in the story, is like out, outright rebellion. Clear waywardness outwardly. But the other way of being lost, we see in Jonah, which is self-righteousness, which is thinking it is his, his, he deserves God's mercy, as if 
Mercy is something that can be earned and deserved. It's interesting, in this story, we see God is coming for both the Ninevites, the terrorist nation of Assyria, and God is coming for the self-righteous pouting prophet we see in Jonah. So on week one, we left Jonah in the belly of the whale. Great fish, actually. On week two, we left Jonah spit up on shore. And last week, we left Jonah where burning with anger. Uh, Today, we're going to look at the final chapter, which is chapter four in the book of Jonah. It is the most overlooked chapter in this story. Okay, remember, Jonah has just preached to the most difficult audience of his life, and they've responded positively. So we would expect that there would be rejoicing that the next verse would be something like, and he returned to his home country, praising the Lord, or something like that. But that is not what the Bible says. Instead, this is what we read. After the people of Nineveh repent, but to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. For Jonah, his love for himself, for his country, his nationalistic pride had become greater than his love for God and God's kingdom. He's a nationalistic, prodigal prophet. So in his anger, the people have just repented. He's angry. In that state, he prays. And this is what he prays. Jonah says, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry? We're meant to notice the parallels between his prayer right here in chapter 4 and his prayer from the belly of the great fish in chapter 2. We are meant to see the parallels between the first two chapters of this book and the second two chapters. Now, earlier, Jonah had prayed to God, and he had prayed that God would save him from drowning, and then he thanked God for delivering him. When Jonah prayed for his own trouble, what he wanted from God was grace. What he wanted from God was salvation. But when Jonah prays here regarding his enemies, trouble with his enemies, he doesn't want grace and salvation. Now he wants judgment to fall on them. Jonah is basically saying to God, these people, the Ninevites, do not deserve your mercy. And that reveals that Jonah thinks mercy is something to be earned that he and his people are worthy of God's mercy. But his enemies are not. But back it up a minute. The truth is, the Ninevites don't receive God's mercy because they earned it. It's not because they're deserving of it. The people of Nineveh didn't earn their deliverance. Salvation, then and now, is never something that God owes to anybody. If anyone ever hears the voice of eternal love and responds, that is a work of God. That is 100% because of God's mercy and grace. And Jonah doesn't understand that. And in that, 
is a self-righteousness. In that is a pride, is an arrogance, is a lack of humility. You've probably heard Charles Spurgeon, that name. He was a 19th century English preacher. And I read a little story this week about one time um, when he wrote some words. And I want to share these with you. This is what Charles Spurgeon said. He said, One weeknight, he's speaking of himself, one weeknight, when I was sitting in the house of God, the thought struck me. How did you come to be a Christian? Well, I sought the Lord. But how did you come to seek the Lord? The truth flashed across my mind in a moment. I should not have sought him unless there had been some previous influence in my mind to make me seek him. I prayed, thought I, but then I asked myself, how came I to pray? I was induced to pray by reading the scriptures. How came I to read the scriptures? I did read them, but what led me to do so? Then, in a moment, I saw that God was at the bottom of it all and that he was the author of my faith. Are you tracking with his backing it up, peeling the layers back, approach to understanding salvation? Like, I think for a Ninevite, in Jonah's time, they would have to confess, how did I get spared from the judgment of God? Is it because I'm better than others? Is it because I had the good sense to listen to Jonah's preaching when he finally came? No. God is at the bottom of it all. He is the author of all faith. So you and I could do a similar exercise. Like you could, like Charles Spurgeon, say, how is it that I arrived in this room this morning? Back it up and back it up and back it up. Maybe you'd say something like, you know, I became a follower of Christ because my parents shared God's love with me once upon a time. Right there, you have to confess, you didn't choose your parents. God placed you in that family. Or maybe your story is different. I mean, there are plenty of people who are born into families that are Christian families who do not follow God in the way of Jesus. Like, that's not a given. Is it because you were more clever? Or you think you were more moral? Or you think you were more bright? Of course not. There are plenty of clever and moral and bright people who do not respond to the voice of eternal love. So, I too have to confess, peel it back, peel it back, at the bottom of it all, as Spurgeon says. At the bottom of it all is God's unconditional grace. That's what drew me in. That's what gave me even a heart to respond in any way. So if right now you have any desire for God in your life, if you have any spark of faith, hope, love, any interest in Christ, you didn't come up with that. Even that desire came from God. 
that God, that he's at the bottom of it all. And what that means is there's no room for arrogance. There's no room for superiority. There's no room for self-righteousness. Salvation comes from the Lord. And that's not, we're not just talking one time, but an ongoing, growing in the likeness of Christ. All of that is gift. All of that is grace. And it's when we recognize the unconditional grace God offers us that we start to realize, like, what a precious gift life is. What a precious gift faith is. Because all of it comes from God. See, Jonah's problem, he lacks the eyes to see that. He lacks the humility to see that. He thinks he deserves God's mercy, but his enemies do not. It's really worth noting in this prayer in chapter 4 that Jonah has incredibly accurate theology in this prayer. Jonah is declaring that he knows that God is filled with steadfast love, that God is slow to anger, that God that he relents from disaster. All of those phrases, great Old Testament theology. Those nearly identical expressions can be found in Old Testament books. Nehemiah, Joel, Exodus, Psalms, Numbers. So Jonah's problem, it's not doctrinal, if you want to say it that way. It is not his, his problem is not his orthodoxy. Jonah's problem is at his, the level of his heart. It is not in his mind, it is in his heart. Like, he can quote the scripture. His attitude stinks. He can tell you all the things about God. He still wants his enemies crushed. Jonah really represents the people of God who have lost the heart of God. The scripture goes on and says, Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. He's picture this. He's like sitting there, looking, waiting, what's going to happen to them, to those others who I can't stand. I'm just going to sit here and pout and watch what happens to them. But before we judge Jonah too strictly, like, do you ever catch yourself watching the lives of other people? Do you ever catch yourself looking at other people's lives and wondering, why is God giving them X, Y, and Z? Like, why are they prospering? Why are they healthy? Why are their kids so perfect? Why does their life seem to have no trouble? Do you ever catch yourself just focused on, God, why are you not, why, why is everything about me? Why, why are you not, and why are they thriving. In the Narnia, the Chronicles of Narnia story, the Christ figure, Aslan, at one point he comes to the children and he says, don't look at him. Don't look at her. I'm not going to tell you anybody else's story but your own. Don't look at him. Don't look at her. I'm not going to tell you anybody else's story but your own. 
don't ask me, Jonah, why I'm dealing with the Ninevites this way. Don't you know? I don't give anybody what they deserve. If I gave people what they deserve, there'd be nobody left. So don't worry about what I'm doing with them. Just look at me. Look at yourself. I'm only going to tell you the story that is your own. And remember, all this is gift. All this is grace. And if you can see that, if you can humble yourself and see that, you will be so much happier, Jonah. The scripture goes on to say, Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm, which chewed the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die. He said, it would be better for me to die than to live. The plant. This is actually the third time the word appoint has come. So in chapter 1, we're told God appointed a great fish to come and help Jonah out. And then we're told that he appointed a plant that provided shade. Jonah loves that plant. Now in verse 7, we're told, but when dawn came up the next day, here it is again, God appointed a worm this time that attacked the plant so that it withered. God has now done, with the worm, a different kind of appointing. The first two were to help Jonah, and this one is actually to help Jonah too, but it's not in the way that Jonah anticipates. So can we just talk about this plant? In the King James Version, it's called the gourd. This plant, this vine, this gourd is providing shade in the Middle East. It's hot. Jonah loves this plant. And the story of the plant really shows us like the pettiness of Jonah's position. He is delighted in this plant, which is keeping him cooler during the day, and then he becomes furious when God destroys it. He loves a plant and has become overcome with emotion for it. Simultaneously, he could care less about thousands of people in Nineveh waiting to see if they would live or die. So he's kind of like a little child who maybe goes into like the ward of a hospital and builds a little tent fort out of blankets. And then all of a sudden, you know, that tent fort falls and the little child starts freaking out. This is a disaster. This is terrible. This is all the while just being oblivious to like the real tragedies that are going on in the hospital all around him. That is kind of what the picture that we see with Jonah right now. Like the plant represents all those things in this life that we're really actually living for, that we're really finding they are our sources of, uh, we find our happiness in, we find our comfort in, we find our rest in, those things we, come, we get like inordinately attached to. Jonah gets angry when things don't go his way, and what does he do? He blames God. Because from Jonah's vantage point, like he's got this childish mentality, from his vantage point, how can God be loving if he won't crush my enemies? And how can God be loving when he just took away my shade? He just took away this plant I love. So how can God possibly be loving when he won't crush my enemies and he's taken away my comfort? The Bible here says 
in this case, God appoints a worm. God appoints a worm to destroy the plant. Like, apparently, Jonah's comfort is not God's highest priority. And Jonah has yet to learn that there are various aspects to the love of God. That the love of God is kind of like a fire, right? It warms and it refines. One aspect of God's love is his refining love. So the love of God, the love of God in this story appoints a plant for shade. And later, the same love of God appoints a worm that takes away the shade, takes away Jonah's source of happiness. And both of these are aspects of God's love. Now, when we experience pain, when we have sources of comfort stripped away, we tend to respond in like generally one of three ways as a cynic, as a romantic, or as a follower of Christ. Here's what I mean. A cynic, when a source of happiness, a source of comfort is stripped away, a cynic will say something over time, like, I never needed that plant anyway. They will get hard, they will get callous, they will push through. A romantic will be completely devastated because all of life was wrapped up in that and will continue to find ways to get that back. A follower of Christ, though, doesn't deny pain and ultimately, in the end, doesn't fall apart from it. Of course, everyone struggles, but for a follower of Christ, God is ultimately in charge. And so a follower of Christ, in the struggle, seeks to understand, number one, I don't have the whole picture here. Number two, I'm not alone. And number three, what can I learn in this pain. What is there for me here that maybe can't be found anywhere else? I recognize that when my plant withers and dies, and in that moment, I don't have the full picture. Now, practically speaking, like, how do we actually do that? How do you actually do that when a source of comfort, source of happiness, is stripped away? It seems like the answer consistently in life is to look again at Christ. To look again at Christ. I mean, just consider for a second. When Christ goes to the cross, we can see now, from this point in history, the incredible cosmic wisdom of God at the cross. Like, when Jesus goes to the cross, Evil is not minimized. Sin is not minimized. It's not just brushed aside. It's not swept under the rug. It's actually dealt with at the exact same time. We're not crushed. We're actually saved. That is incredible cosmic wisdom. We can see it from this vantage point. But put yourself, like in real time, you're standing at the cross. Jesus is being crucified. Most people standing there are thinking, there is no possible way anything good can come from this. In real time, there is no possible way anything good could come from this. 
And so some people actually turned their backs on the greatest moment in redemptive history. Why? It didn't fit into their neat, tidy little boxes of how God ought to work. It did not fit into their tidy little categories of understanding. It didn't fit into their neat little idea about how God should be dealing with them, about how God should be behaving. And is it possible that we do that too? Like, is it possible that you could be viewing your circumstances that way right now? Saying, just because you cannot see God's wisdom in your life right now, that it's not there. That just because you can't understand what God's up to in this, that somehow he's not present in it. God's actions in this story, they do not make sense to Jonah. And Jonah gets angry, and he blames God. Jonah is kind of, you could say, almost like a patient being wheeled into surgery and saying to the doctor with every single thing, like the doctor pulls out an instrument, what is that for? As if like, don't inflict that on me. Don't, don't use that on me. If I can't understand it, I don't want it. Like, unless I have a full medical degree, you can't touch me. I mean, at some point, if a patient is going into surgery and the patient is saying to the doctor, what's that? Don't use that on me. You can't. What are you doing? I don't get it. At some point, the doctor just has to say, like, until you can surrender to being a patient, I can't be the doctor in your life. Jonah doesn't see the wisdom of God. That doesn't mean the wisdom of God isn't present. Jonah really just, he wants the blessings of, of God, but he rejects the presence of God and the call of God. He's rejecting the refining fire, the refining love of God in his life. Twice in this passage, God poses a question to Jonah. Two times, God says to Jonah, do you do well to be angry? And the whole story with the plant is exposing Jonah's heart. The whole story of the book is exposing God's heart. God is saying, I love the Ninevites in spite of their violence. And God is saying, Jonah, I love you in spite of your arrogance. God loves the people of Nineveh, and God loves his prodigal prophet. And just like Jonah had loved that plant, God is saying, I love the people of Nineveh. The scriptures say, but the Lord said, you've been concerned about the plant. Should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people? God is saying, Jonah, you're really upset about the plant, but you want me to go nuke 120,000 people, and you want to sit on the sidelines and like cheer me on as I do it. God says, Jonah, you're concerned about the plant. I'm concerned about the people. And that word concerned, some translations say uh, pity, that God had pity on Nineveh. God was concerned for the Ninevites. That little word in Hebrew is a word, it actually means to grieve over or to mourn. Or the literal something was like the eyes flow. What God is saying to Jonah and really to all of us is, look at what you weep over and look at what I weep over. 
Look at what you love and look at what I love. Your love often flows inward. You know, you're weeping over your own troubles. You're weeping over your own problems. You're saying, poor me. God is saying, my love flows outward to the unfamiliar, to the undeserving. Basically, God is saying to Jonah here, Jonah, what are you really living for? What is it, Jonah, that you're really living for? Whose glory, Jonah, are you really living for? Like, whose glory are you really absorbed in? Whose glory are you really caught up in? Can't you see it's your own, Jonah? The plant in the story is like, uh, you know, it represents this comfortable thing, this familiar thing, and it's very obvious that the plant itself is a gift. It's kind of like an antique piece of china or something. You know, it was like your great-grandmother's, and then it was your grandmother's, and then it was your mother's, and then it's yours. And one day, a little kid, like, knocks it off, and it breaks shatters to a thousand pieces and maybe you actually weep you actually cry because we get attached to the familiar this plant represents something that is comfortable something that is familiar when we get attached to these things and we lose them you know god is basically saying to jonah in this moment when the plant is gone you care more about this stuff than about people I mean, today, be like, you know, God saying, boy, you care more about how your skin looks than other people. You care more about how your house looks than those that have none. You care more about your bank account than people who, nations of people who are far from me. You weep for yourself, but when was the last time you wept for other people who don't have hope? who don't have God, like Jonah, who are you really living for? And it's easy, you know, to look at the story like this and to spot the sins of Jonah. It's harder sometimes for us to spot our own. But God's questions to Jonah are not just for Jonah. This is such a weird little book. It ends in the strangest possible way. The book ends with a question. God asks Jonah a question, and then the book just ends. We never know how Jonah responds to that question. We do not know what he does. It is as if God asks Jonah a question, and Jonah doesn't answer. It's like he steps out of the way, and that same question comes like an arrow through history straight to us. That's how the book ends. The final verses say this. But the Lord said, you've been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow gift. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left? and also many animals. That 
is the end. It's an open-ended question to end the book, and we don't know what Jonah does. We don't know what Jonah chooses. God is asking Jonah, Jonah, what are you really living for? And as Jonah doesn't answer the question, it is as though he just steps aside and the question comes straight to us. What are we living for? That is the book of Jonah. Let's pray together as we close. Lord Jesus, I thank you that with you and you only are we fully known, fully loved, with no fear of rejection. God, we thank you for this book. We thank you that in reading it, we can see the allegiances of Jonah's heart. And in considering them, we can see the allegiances of our heart. I pray that you, in the context of your love, would give us the courage to see that you're coming for us, whether we are the wayward Ninevite or we are the prodigal prophet, and that there is no thing that your refining fire does not seek to touch in our lives. May we be open to your love in all its facets. We pray this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.